morning, you're listening to Subject ACT for Canberra's Local Current Affairs. This is 2XXFM. I'm Becca Posterino. It's Monday the 15th of February. This morning, we dig deeper into the issue of alcohol-fuelled violence and its impact on the community. I spoke to an assault victim, Andrew DeProse, who shares his experience and the impacts of the event on his day-to-day life. I also met with Professor Drew Richardson, emergency doctor at Canberra Hospital, who shares his insights on this issue and the effects of these events on care staff. You're listening to 98.3 FM. I'm Becca Posterino. Coming up, assault victim Andrew DeProse. Welcome to the program, Andrew. Thank you, Becca. It's great to be here. What do you remember about the assault? Uh, I actually remember nothing because I have post-traumatic amnesia. So my memory essentially... As far as it's concerned, I was walking through Greenwood Place and the very next thing I knew, I woke up in hospital going, what am I doing here? How did that feel, that moment of waking up in the hospital? What was running through your head? Uh, Not a lot because I was on morphine. Uh, (laughs) So um, I guess because I was on the morphine, I didn't really feel scared or anything. Mm -hmm. I did feel confused and bewildered. Mm -hmm. The hospital staff were aware that I'd woken up. It Mm -hmm. took them very little time to realize that I was conscious again. Mm -hmm. And so it was a very short amount of time between me waking up and having a hospital member come over and say, hi, Mm -hmm. you're here because Mm -hmm. you've been assaulted. How long was it from the assault to when you woke up? Probably... Six hours, I'd say, yeah. Somewhere between 9 and 11 in the morning. I can't exactly remember. So in those six hours, what was your body doing? What was it coping with? I guess the trauma of being assaulted, and that's why I have the post-traumatic amnesia, because it was a pretty traumatic event. So I guess uh, it was just processing and also uh, trying to deal with the injury to my brain that I'd sustained and the bleeding on the brain that I had. So the impact of the assault, your brain was bleeding? Yes. And you have an ongoing or long-term injury because of that impact? Yeah. Can you explain that injury? Essentially, I woke up in the hospital and then shortly afterwards they told me that I should be all right to go home. I should just take it easy and I should rest. So uh, they said I should just take it easy and rest, get a lot of bed rest, and I should probably expect some headaches. I went home and pretty much for the next three days I slept. I didn't really do anything else. I would get up occasionally to have a cigarette or maybe a carrot or some Mm. crackers Mm. and then I'd just go back to sleep. But on the 30th of January, I woke up at 4.30 in the morning with the worst headache I've ever had and I waited until 6.30 in the morning and I called my mum and I informed her and she said right we're going back to the hospital and so we went to the hospital and they were like oh I don't know you should be okay they gave me another scan and we waited uh, until about 11 o'clock in the morning Mm -hmm. and then they rushed over and apologised and said you're not okay we need to get you to Woden because they're more equipped and able to uh, treat the injury that I had so the main concern was that i'd have i could develop a blood clot on the brain Mm -hmm. so i was put on blood thinners unfortunately that never became an issue Mm, that's quite an ordeal yeah so such a um, short amount of time i was told by the specialist who came to see me a neurosurgeon Mm -hmm. um he said that i should expect um headaches as well as poor memory Mm -hmm. poor concentration and poor cognitive processes or the Mm -hmm. the ability to think and to reason and to 
uh, use logic and that sort mm-hmm. of thing. Um, so, and sure enough, I did, mm-hmm. um, uh, and that was quite an issue. Uh, I remember in the days when I was in the hospital, which I, I stayed for 10 days, mm-hmm. um, I uh, suffered from all of those things quite mm-hmm. acutely. Mm-hmm. I also had trouble walking on a straight line. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I spent a lot of time walking around the hospital mm-hmm. um, trying to walk in a straight line mm-hmm. um, and mostly getting frustrated. Mm-hmm. Um, so from the, I guess, the moment when you or your carers realised that there was a deeper problem, were they able to ascertain or were they able to identify that it was amnesia that you were were enduring? Was that something they were able to diagnose? Fairly easily because essentially what uh, uh, my uh, neurosurgeon um, told me was, well, what my neurosurgeon asked me was you know Mm -hmm. he put me through a series of questions trying to figure out what I remembered and what memory I had and whether or not I could tell him what had happened Mm -hmm. to me and why I was in the hospital Mm -hmm. and it was pretty easy to tell that I had no memory of any of that sort of thing so I couldn't unfortunately help him and tell him how I was struck and where I was struck and that sort of thing so you have no memory none of the assault no but your long-term memory was intact? Um, to a certain point. Um, mm-hmm. I still have trouble with that, actually. Um, even long-term acquaintances, I forget their names mm-hmm. frequently. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and they approach me and they're like, hey, how's it going? And I remember that we have an association mm-hmm. and I can kind of remember, oh, you're important to me, mm-hmm. but I may not always remember why. Mm-hmm. Um so the the only way that we were able to tell how I was struck was from my injuries. Mm-hmm. So I had extensive bruising around the jaw mm-hmm. uh, and my neck. Uh, I had a cluster of burst blood vessels on the back of my skull. Mm. Um, and that was really all the uh, visible physical injury mm-hmm. apart from the uh, brain. Mm-hmm. So did you feel the physical injury as well as a recognition that your memory had been impaired? Were you aware that your body had been through that sort of trauma? Uh, well, from the pain, yeah. Yeah, you felt the pain. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah. that was the only direct yeah. reference to your incident was the pain and that I, the memory had. Yes, and I remember they took me off the morphine, but they put me on some pretty powerful codeine-based mm-hmm. painkillers. Um, they were interesting. Uh, so. Mm. so we've talked about some of the injuries. What were some other injuries that you incurred as a result of the assault? Uh, well, for instance, I've uh, suffered from uh, uh, some anxiety mm-hmm. disorders for mm-hmm. quite some time. And I was actually doing fairly well with my recovery from those um, to the point where they weren't impacting me a lot. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, on the other hand, they're a lot worse again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm also constantly uh, paranoid in public places mm-hmm. as to whether or not I might get attacked. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was having that conversation with my psychiatrist mm-hmm. and she posed me the question, why would you think you'd get attacked when you've done nothing? And I simply replied, but I'd done nothing when I was assaulted. Because mm-hmm. uh, as far as I was concerned, well, from what I've been told, um, 
uh, by my friends who were witnesses to the assault. We were walking along and three people charged out of an alley and attacked us with no provocation, no warning, no words exchanged, uh, nothing. So when you hear that that's what happened to you, do you imagine that that's someone else that that happened to because you have that distance? That sort of disconnect? Yeah, Uh, yeah, kind of. Um, Yeah. I mean, all the details I have about the actual event are things that I've been told uh, Mm. from my friends. Um, So I I don't actually have any details of my own to fall back upon and and rely upon. it, 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 I do have a certain amount of distance from the mm. attack, and I how, suppose. How does that feel, that you you understand that you experienced this, but you have no recollection? Is there some sort of frustration that you have, or is that sort uh, of yeah. a comfort I mean, on, as well? On the, on the one hand, yes, I do feel it's unfair. Um, but on the other hand, uh, my doctor and my... So my, G- my GP and my um, uh, specialist mm-hmm. neurosurgeon and also the neuropsychologist that they sent me to see after the assault, uh, they all said, look, you know, it's obvious that your mind is protecting you from something mm-hmm. that you found traumatic. Yes. So perhaps if I did remember it, I wouldn't be able to deal with it. Mm-hmm. So in a mm-hmm. way, it's fortunate. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you feel that alcohol and or drugs were in an influencing factor in the assault? Uh, yes, uh, because from what I've been told, they'd been the uh, attackers matched the description of some people who had been kicked out of uh, Moosehead's nightclub mm-hmm. earlier in the night, them being at a pub or mm. bar or whatever, um, had something to do with their actions mm. throughout the night. But, I mean, any anything I say is mere speculation because mm. the people who attacked me were never caught and mm. we have no idea as to their state. So you don't know who they are? No. In the aftermath of your assault, did you approach police? Did you inform law enforcement that you had been assaulted? Uh, well, uh, we were interviewed by the police after the assault. I wasn't because I was still unconscious, but my friends were, to be honest, they weren't particularly helpful and they were a bit hostile. From from what I've been told, they kept refusing to believe that there had been no antagonism on our part mm-hmm. to our attackers. As far as they were concerned, it was very unlikely mm-hmm. that people should just attack for no reason, but mm-hmm. that's what happened. So it was frustrating not to be believed for what had happened to us when we were just victims. I also approached victim services but as i said i have trouble with memory mm. so each time i approached them they said i would need to get the report from the police um detailing what had happened mm. and then i would shortly afterwards forget that i needed to mm. get that report so mm. i still haven't seen any resolution uh, or compensation or anything like that um so that's something i'll be chasing up in this mm. this year mm. so have you had support with the understanding that you have memory difficulties have you had some assistance by professional uh, carers 
to help you through that process to help you through that not just medical process but help you through that legal process to seek justice uh no i haven't uh i was i I do remember that victim services said that they could refer me to a psychologist Mm -hmm. um about the event but i've been seeing a psychologist for a while with with uh in reference to in reference to uh my anxiety mm-hmm. disorders mm-hmm. uh and which I, were pre-existing yes yes uh but made worse by the yes. assault but he's very experienced and i have mm-hmm. a lot of faith in him mm-hmm. and i'm comfortable with him we have a rapport of course uh, so that's I was, important so i was yeah so i was reluctant to um try and establish all of that with a new person sure. especially about something which was so personal mm-hmm. um and terrifying. On a day-to-day basis, Andrew, if you wouldn't mind sharing how the assault has impacted your life. Essentially, uh, it, it, it's a, I have a lot of the same symptoms and mm-hmm. after effects, but to a lesser degree because it's now been two years. So, for instance, when I uh, got into the hospital, they made me walk around in a straight line mm-hmm. uh, before they would release me. Now, mostly on a day-to-day basis now, I'm okay, but I do occasionally have balance issues. Mm-hmm. They also made me practice being in a kitchen, making toast and cereal and mm-hmm. coffee, mm-hmm. Uh, just so that they could make sure that I could at least make toast for myself when mm-hmm. I was discharged. Yes. And uh, I failed the first time uh, Mm. because they were timing me because they wanted to make sure I could also do it in a quick enough fashion Mm -hmm. that I'd be able to look after myself. Mm -hmm. Most days I'm okay, but for instance, today before coming into the studio, it took me three hours to get ready. Mm. Um, So that's not exactly normal. What are the challenges within that three hours to getting ready to come into the interview today? I've got this uh, funny habit of uh, every now and again just I'll be in the kitchen and I'll wander into the lounge room and then I'll go, what am I doing here? Why am I here? This is okay, fine. I was in the middle of something. I'll just go back to doing that. It's happened to me so many times now that I used to get really, really annoyed with myself, Mm. uh, really angry that it was happening to me because it was such a strange habit to Mm. develop after the assault. Now I just simply shrug my shoulders and go, oh, well, that happens. From what I understand, uh, the police were, uh, they they did have a uh, car or a paddy wagon stationed in Grima Place where it typically is on nights where they expect something to happen. So, you know, it's just outside McDonald's in um, uh, Greenwood Place. But from what I understand, there'd been something happen at Mooseheads, and so they'd been called away. Mm. And so perhaps we could say that night there simply weren't enough police mm. to be able to possibly uh, protect uh, on, on, on a day when they knew that they m- may need Mm. to be called upon Mm. so they they were obviously aware that they may need to be called upon which is why they were there Mm -hmm. in the first place but then when they were called away there was you know sort of resources yeah a thing yeah um so I, i think also people in general need more education about alcohol Mm -hmm. so i think there's too much emphasis on um people saying at the moment oh uh alcohol fueled violence is bad and it's like well yeah okay obviously but Mm. what can we do about it we don't simply want to um uh restrict the hours that alcohol is sold and we don't want to have lock lock lock-ins i think what we need is more awareness of how alcohol affects you Mm. don't simply go oh if alcohol is in your system you might be violent because people go why 
I'm not usually a violent person. Mm. What, what we need to do is ha- ha- explore that further and expand on that and go, look, it lowers your inhibitions. Mm. So you've got to be aware of the fact that if you consume a large amount of alcohol, you're going to be less inhibited. So although usually you're going to say, no, why would I hit somebody? You've got to be aware of the fact that if you have a large amount of alcohol in your system, your brain doesn't have the necessary uh, steps of thinking to go, well, usually I wouldn't hit this bloke, so why should I? You get offended and you're far more likely to hit somebody. Mm. You're listening to 2XFM. The program is Subject ACT, where we burrow into Canberra's local current affairs. That was Andrew DePros, who shared his experiences beyond a violent assault. Coming up, Professor Drew Richardson, emergency doctor at Canberra Hospital, invites us into his world to examine the impact on violence for frontline carers. My name is Becca Posterino. The program is Subject ACT. This is 2XXFM 98.3. And this morning we're talking with Professor Drew Richardson, the Senior Staff Specialist in Emergency Medicine at Canberra Hospital. He also holds the role of NRMA ACT Road Safety Trust Chair of Road Trauma and Emergency Medicine. So a few hats there. Welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us this morning. Good morning. In relation to the one-hit assault or the one-punch assault in Civic on New Year's Eve this year, what impact does this form of violence have on the community from a health perspective? It's a serious form of violence and from a health perspective we're always concerned about people who've come to the hospital system when it's essentially entirely preventable. Mm. This, this is Violence is a health outcome that we really don't want to see. It's distressing for the staff, it's distressing for the patients and it sometimes involves people who were completely innocent. So in the context of the Canberra Hospital, how do these violent assaults affect the emergency health carers who treat the patients? It's very upsetting for the staff, as I say, to have to deal with uh, entirely preventable things of this nature. It's also upsetting for the staff that they're, they're dealing with people affected by alcohol. Mm. The recent survey showed that over 90% of emergency nurses reported feeling verbally or physically threatened in the last 12 months by someone affected by alcohol, and that clearly makes their job harder than it should be. Is there enough protection within the hospitals for all of the healthcare staff? Look, the hospitals run a very tight system in terms of security, but uh, emergency medicine and nursing in particular is, is very much a one-on-one specialty. Mm-hmm. It's necessary for staff to interact with these patients. Of course. And whilst there's some self-selection as to who goes into emergency medicine, none of us like to be in the position where we're dealing with that kind of patient. What are some of the injuries incurred from alcohol and drug-related assaults? Uh, it's, the f- it's the full gamut. Uh, we see people affected by alcohol and people who were innocent and and affected by others. The most serious numerically is road trauma in terms of injury, Mm -hmm. Uh, but the the commonest is the minor to major assault uh, from the nightclub setting and -hmm. and sometimes from the private home. Normally it occurs in people who are also affected by alcohol Mm -hmm. as well. I know that this program is focused on the one punch assault with regard to alcohol how much of an issue is this for road trauma there must be a a whole community that is possibly in crisis because of it would you absolutely Uh, look uh, still around 20 percent of serious crashes in our community Mm -hmm. are caused by alcohol Mm -hmm. and yet we know from the rbt experience that only about one percent of drivers out there are Mm -hmm. affected 
that's an appalling figure mm. uh, because the vast majority of crashes involve more than one vehicle and mm-hmm. more than one person. The passengers and the people in the other car may, may have nothing to do with it mm-hmm. and yet we see them and they suffer from this often in lifelong terms. And you're on the front line. You're a doctor that works in emergency department at Canberra Hospital. Absolutely. We found out last year that about, on a Friday and Saturday night, about one patient in seven who's in the emergency department is there because of alcohol. Mm. Not necessarily, but most commonly because they one drink it themselves. One in seven. One in seven. Yep. And what about drugs? Is that another statistic? It's, or is it... it's another statistic. It's somewhat harder to quantify sure. because people are less, l- less willing to say how much they've had. But mm. yes, the, the figures are similar. And of course, they coexist. Mm-hmm. People are affected by both alcohol and drugs. How do drugs and alcohol fuel violent assaults? What's going on in people when they are... I guess, influenced by these substances. It's a tragedy because everyone should be entitled to to have a good time and Mm -hmm. to enjoy whatever they find enjoyable in life, but Mm -hmm. there's no way it's enjoyable to end up in hospital Mm -hmm. after a night out. Mm -hmm. And so excess is really the the biggest key key here. Mm -hmm. And why, in your view, in your experience as a doctor, why are... Canberrans, Australians, uh, drinking to that sort of excess. I know it's. I understand it's a it's a minority of the population drinking the majority of that sort of high substance or consumption. But why why is that? There's there's both uh, social and individual reasons. At, mm-hmm. at an individual level, there's no doubt that alcohol causes you to make bad decisions, and mm-hmm. probably the single commonest bad decision is to have another drink. But there's a whole society in which we're operating, a society in, in which alcohol is available and acceptable, mm-hmm. and that's a discussion the community needs to have mm-hmm. in terms of, of uh, what restrictions, if any, we place around that. We discussed advertising. Michael Thorne of Fair Australia mentioned that advertising not only perpetuates this kind of illusion but it actually glamorizes in some way he didn't use glamorize but paraphrasing what he said in some way it reinforces the notion that drinking is a socially heroic more than acceptable would you well, could, would you say that advertising <laughs> is Advertising is certainly an influence. It's part of one part of what is a very large industry. Mm -hmm. Uh, Australians have always drunk, and there's always been an industry to supply them. Mm -hmm. It's part of our community that that uh, we accept or choose to put restrictions on Mm -hmm. uh, just how that industry operates and what mechanisms it uses to Mm -hmm. encourage people to consume its products. Mm. From a health perspective, what is the flow and effect for ongoing health issues for? Victims of assault. Uh, once again, there's a spectrum, but uh, assaults range from simple cuts and bruises that need stitches mm-hmm. through to major brain damage and, and uh, major limb injury. We're particularly worried in emergency medicine about brain damage and life-threatening injuries because mm-hmm. that's what we exist to mm-hmm. treat. Uh, having said that, it's a tragedy that we're dealing with people who have essentially self-inflicted injuries whilst mm-hmm. there's so many blameless people out there who are blocked for getting, from getting care by uh, mm-hmm. drunken and sometimes violent and difficult patients. Mm-hmm. So from a pragmatic or an economic point of view, it, how much is this costing if you have an awareness of that? Uh, look, uh, I... 
I, I can't put a community figure mm. on it, but it's been done by others and it's costing billions. The, mm. the cost of alcohol uh, is measured in the billions in this country. So from an economic point of view, it's worth uh, addressing this issue. Absolutely. If anything. So beyond the issue of one punched salts in the incidence of alcohol and drug fueled violence in the domestic and family environment, is the emergency health carers under pressure due to this national crisis? Uh, look, we're certainly under pressure. As I said, one in seven patients on a Friday and Saturday night is a major part of our workload. And by their nature, these patients are not quiet and accepting of the care that they're offered. They tend to be a disruptive group at mm. the best of times. So it's absolutely a, a frontline issue for medical and nursing staff who are treating patients in our, in our community. And what needs to change, in your view? How... The, is this a collaborative approach? This, this is a collaborative to... approach. We're talking, as I said, about a large industry and, and about a whole lot of factors that affect consumption. There's cultural factors, there's economic factors, mm. there's specific Friday and Saturday night geographical factors, mm. as, as anyone would know if they've uh, been through Civic on one of those nights. Mm-hmm. We need a, a wide-ranging community discussion about just what the purpose and uh, products of alcohol consumption are. Mm-hmm. So the media tend to focus on isolated events such as a one-punch assault. This brought me to this discussion. However, it's gone off on tangent, and I'm glad it has. However, there are ongoing issues that need community recognition, particularly in regards to our emergency health carers, the victims of assault, and their families in the community at large. We talked about the key issues, but in your view, what are the key issues that we need to recognise and address? I think it's important that we've that attention is drawn to the issue, even if it is by isolated events mm-hmm. like a one-punch assault. But for the staff on the front line, this, we are not surprised on a Friday or Saturday mm-hmm. night when the emergency department has many patients affected mm-hmm. by alcohol. Unfortunately, we wish we could be surprised. We wish mm-hmm. it was a rare event, and it's all too common. How do your care staff deal with that? Is there a measure that they can take? Look, there's obviously a bit of self-selection as to who gets into emergency medicine. Mm. And and, uh, if you're not prepared to balance the bad things that happen with the good that you're able to do, then Mm -hmm. it's not a profession where you stay. Mm. Having said that, nobody deserves to have bad things happen to Mm. them. It is, of course, distressing. And it certainly has the the, uh, interpersonal issues with the patients have left people leaving the profession, which Mm -hmm. is uh, a terrible tragedy. Particularly because because it's a gift to be in that position and it's hard to find people. So we need, as a community, in appreciation for these health carers, we need to protect them from these, you know, the ongoing effects of that as well. So even though you're invited into the conversation or what are the impacts, it's actually you that need to be cared for as well. That's a point to consider in the discussion. So what needs to change in our community to address this issue, in your view? I think we need to look at the place of alcohol in our community and do so in the widest possible way. I'm pleased that a one-punch assault has brought the issue to a head, mm-hmm. but I'm not pleased that such assaults exist. And I think mm-hmm. that concentrating on an isolated incident is not enough. We, mm-hmm. we need to look at the availability, the pricing, the advertising, the industry and the geography mm-hmm. of alcohol. And we, and we need to turn it back to personal responsibility as well. It really isn't a good night out mm-hmm. if somebody ends up in hospital. Dr Bartels from the University of Canberra talked, uh, spoke on a legal perspective this morning and she spoke of the need to address the reasons why people are drinking to excess. Do you think that's um, an important part? I know that you see the very front line of these people and maybe your mind is distant from why are you doing this, but do you think, if you can delve a bit deeper, that that needs to be something that we're addressing? 
Absolutely. As I say, most people don't go out with the intention of ending up in hospital, but the mere fact that they go out drinking in a way that can end up with somebody in hospital is an indictment of their approach to alcohol. Mm -hmm. To touch upon uh, the demographic that we spoke of before, is there a particular group that are offending or re-offending in terms of violence or alcohol and drug fueled violence? Uh, absolutely. Look, there's no doubt that we see effects of alcohol in everyone from children through to the elderly, but there's an absolute demographic peak in 18 to 25-year-old men. No doubt about that. And are there programs designed to target this? Uh, there certainly are, but the, but 18 to 25-year-old men are perhaps not known as a group for uh, voluntarily attending such programs. So considering that it is 18 to 25, perhaps prior to that um, is the age group where we want to be targeting in terms of education. Is that being addressed in the education system at large? Uh, it certainly is. Well, I'm, I'm certainly no expert on the uh, education system, but there most definitely are uh, lifestyle teaching mm-hmm. programs uh, throughout our high schools mm-hmm. that uh, deal with alcohol and drug abuse and, and the likely responsibilities of adulthood. So perhaps we need to have a conversation between that gap of, say, 16 to 18 and what is happening maybe in the, in the mental development or the psychological development of young men in particular and why there is that leap. I know hormones is probably one thing and that's another topic, but um, I think that's a really important discussion that we need to have to address, I guess, rite of passage through to manhood or adulthood. Thank you so much for your time, Professor Drew Richardson. It's a really important perspective and I'd really like to have you on the program again. Thank you. For more insights, but thanks for your time. You're listening to Subject ACT on 2XXFM. That was Professor Drew Richardson, emergency doctor at Canberra Hospital, discussing violence in Canberra and its impact on emergency care workers. On next week's program, I talk to Dr. Lorana Bartels of University of Canberra's School of Law and Justice for a legal perspective. This will conclude our feature on violence in Canberra on Subject ACT. On Tuesday's edition of Subject ACT, Robert G invites a discussion on libraries in today's world, particularly Canberra, and he speaks to Australian National University librarian and the head of the ACT public library system. Thanks for your company this morning. I'm Becca Postorino, executive producer of 2XXFM's local current affairs program, Subject ACT. You're listening to 98.3 FM. Coming up, all the best. 